0: I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're The, the Trade, trade Guys. Guys.
1: You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys.
2: In this episode, we discuss ties remarks on digital trade and gaps in the Biden administration's policy approach in the Indo-Pacific region. We also give a mid-COP26 breakdown of the latest updates, including pledges from the business community and the outlook for renewable energy sources. And we touch on the most recent developments on environmental goods and fisheries subsidy. Stay tuned for all that and more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Good morning, Trade Guys. So digital trade has been a headline in trade news recently, especially after USTR gave a speech on digital trade law at Georgetown last Wednesday. These were her first public remarks on the subject, and people were anticipating an announcement on depa but we didn't get any big new updates. What were your reactions to her speech?
0: Well, I wrote a cranky column about it, so I'm in cranky mode, which... And the thrust of the column was, yeah, she didn't have a lot to say. We were hoping there would be some reference to what the uh, Trade and Technology Council with Europe might do, because it's focused on exactly uh, digital trade subjects. There was also the expectation expectation of what uh, uh, you just said, Jasmine, that she would announce something with respect to the Pacific region, either applying for membership in DEPA, which is the Digital um, Economic Partnership Agreement. I think the E stands for economic with Singapore, Chile, and New Zealand, as I recall, or that she would launch a, uh, a new thing, an Indo-Pacific digital trade agreement, which a lot of people in the business community have urged her to do. I don't think that's such a great idea, but the reality is she didn't do any of those things. And um, the result was I found myself saying, you know, just get on with it. Uh, you know, th- these things have been under review for 11 months, and there's sometimes uh, it's better to make any decision than it is to make no decision. And the reality, particularly in a fast-moving and fast-changing sector like information and communications technology, is um, other countries are moving on uh, without us. You know, They're uh, developing standards, they're reaching agreements, they're you know, developing uh, new practices, and they're all doing it all without us. And in the process, they're learning that they don't really need us, which I think is not good for us. Uh, and it's going to leave us uh, behind as digital structures and digital trade rules are developed, you know, without our input. This is already happening with the EU, uh, which is busy, uh, you know, inserting the precautionary principle into their digital regulation. You know, I think that's uh, a terrible thing to do. But the greater crime is that we're not responding. We're not doing anything. And you know, it's a fair point. It's it's not Catherine's job to develop you know, digital regulation policy in the United States. There's a lot of other people tasked with that. But it is her job, I think, to try to make sure that our interests are defended uh, in foreign venues. And I don't see a lot of that happening
1: right now. Look, this is an opportunity that that I would be running toward if I were King or USDR, whichever uh, applies here. I was most intrigued by the letter from Senate Rep- Republicans, the Finance Committee members of the Republican side, to the President about uh, the importance of a digital trade deal, and I would take that as an open open door ready to be pushed upon. And look. I recall the advice we got, Bill and, Bill and I got, from uh, from the late Senator Bill Brock uh, when it came to digital trade. And, and we noted that there was really no domestic consensus. And uh, Senator Brock said, well, why not use the pressure of an international agreement or the need to move forward internationally, to advance or, or push on the, the domestic policy levers and get the domestic consensus as a, and so you so you you solve a problem that is hard to solve domestically, but but uh, puts us in a much better position internationally. And you're working across the aisle in in a way that that first of all makes it a lot easier to advance. Second, it's it's a, a courtesy to people who are not all that active in policymaking these days, given the small majorities in both houses. And, and I, I think it would be appreciated. And it's something, you know, it's something to establish yourself as somebody who can work on a sort of a centrist policy. So I'd be I'd be all over this. But uh, uh, I hope hope Catherine uh, uh, gets there. Ambassador Ty is uh, is wise enough and had spent enough time on the on the House Ways and Means Committee to understand that this might be a good idea for her.
0: Yeah, I just, I don't quite understand the delay. I mean, and it's sort of a, a delay on, on more than one front. The obvious delay is is Asia, where the administration has been criticized by us, among others, for not having an Asian economic policy. And we can continue to criticize them because, you know, she's now given uh, a bunch of speeches on, on China, on steel, on the WTO, and most recently on digital trade. And they still don't have an Asian economic policy. And I think that the result is that, you know, life is moving on without us via CPTPP, via RCEP, and via these various plurilateral digital agreements, one of which is DEPA, but it's not the only one. And one of the things we're demonstrating, I think, to Asia, A, is that we are kind of missing an action, which opens the door for greater Chinese involvement in the region, which I think is not something that is, is, is that is conducive to free flow of data and an absence of, of, of censorship. But it also raises questions about our commitment to the region. You know, there's just so many obvious things we could do that we're not doing is, is frustrating. And I think likewise, I mean, Senator Brock's advice was, was wise, and it was uh, timely because, in fact, that process is going on. The Europeans are promulgating regulations, they're passing legislation, the Digital Services Act, apparently there's rumors they may vote this month in the European Parliament on it. That's not the last step, but, you know, it's an important next step. The Digital Markets Act, an artificial intelligence uh, regulation. Uh, And I think, you know, if the United States does not have alternatives, that becomes the default for business. Companies that want to do business in Europe are going to have to uh, adhere to that if they want to succeed there. And normally you would expect the United States to be leading on stuff like this because we're a leader in the technologies that are under debate here. In fact, you know, the criticism of the Europeans is that a lot of this is a thinly disguised effort to go after large American companies. Like we used to call them the GAFA countries companies, Google, uh, Apple, uh, Facebook, and and, uh, Amazon. Apparently, now that Facebook has become meta, Can we call them the MAGA companies?
1: At your own risk, yes.
0: (laughs) Yeah, maybe we'll say the Gamma countries and uh, companies instead of the the MAGA companies. Anyway, you know, I would think we would want to be out there defending our interests, but uh, we're not doing any of that. It's kind of a mystery. Uh, Commercial coming on here for those of you that are interested in this issue. uh, We're hosting Peter Harrell, who's in charge of a lot of this in the White House. Uh, at an event on Friday at one o'clock talking about EU uh, digital trade regulation. So perhaps you'll have some news for us.
2: Yeah, Bill, the U.S. is not involved in any of the agreements you mentioned, CPTPP, DEPA, RCEP. But do we have any idea which one is most likely for the U.S. to pursue in the near-term future or if they might want to create an entirely new one themselves?
0: Well from my point of view opinions differ on that I think the thing that makes the most sense is to join uh, CPTPP which looks very much like what we negotiated up through 2016 and until President Trump withdrew from it there are differences and it's 5 years later so there are I think more differences that would that we would want to have dealt with but to me it makes the most sense I think the the world of of Commentators tends to divide into two parts on that. One, the people who say what I just said, and say, that's the right answer, let's stick with it. And the other people who say, yeah, that's all true, it is the right answer, but it doesn't look like this administration is going to do that, so let's go to Plan B. To the extent there's a consensus on Plan B, it's let's have an Indo-Pacific digital trade agreement. And I think the theory on that is that would be politically popular here, which is right. I think there's concern in some quarters that CPTPP may be politically unpopular here because its predecessor was unpopular. I think that's old news and fighting the old war. I think public opinion has changed on that, but you know that's something that we, we can debate. So the proponents of plan B suggest an alternative that is more palatable domestically. I'm inclined to think it might be less palatable in Asia. TPP started out, in the Chinese mind anyway, as, a, as an anti-China effort. They don't think that anymore. They're trying to join it. I think there's uh, a growing uh, consensus in China, in, in, in Asia, that uh, it may very well be the wave of the future. It's a more ambitious agreement than, than RCEP on many fronts. China's trying to join, Taiwan's trying to join, the UK is trying to join. Other countries have said, like Korea, have said publicly that they're thinking about that and I would expect them to go forward with it. So, you know, we're getting left behind on that, but it's no longer, uh, us joining would not be an anti-China gesture. Doing a digital trade agreement that if we pursued it, would I think by definition exclude China, is going to do in Asia exactly what we told the Asian countries we would not do, which is ask them to choose between the U.S. and China. They don't want to do that. We've said we don't want to make them do that. Uh, I think a digital trade agreement agreement would make them do that. So I'm sticking with CPTPP. I don't know if Scott agrees with me.
1: Well, look, uh, this is an opportunity to do what trade negotiators do all the time, which is to take a bunch of lemons and make lemonade. Right? And this is a perfect opportunity for action. And I'm, I'm less doctrinaire about exactly what they do. but. To the extent that trade negotiators can help the rest of the U.S. domestic policy operation get its act together, I think it would be energy well spent.
2: Well, to the audience members, you should definitely tune in to our Friday event. Um, details can be found on the CSIS website. But turning now to climate, we're nearing the end of the U.N. Climate Change Conference. There have been a few notable updates, but not as much as climate activists and certain leaders have hoped. Uh, The business community did pledge to contribute $130 trillion in assets to focus on climate change, create a global standards body um, to scrutinize corporate climate claims, and cut methane emissions. Um, There's some skepticism about the amount of spending and how these goals would be measured and implemented, but uh, what were your initial reactions
0: to these things? Well, my o- my only comment f- first, then I'll, I'll yield to Scott, is the $130 trillion, I think it's I think it's a little bit mis- misleading to say that somebody's going to contribute that. That makes it sound like somebody's going to write a check for $130 trillion. What that seems to be about is that financial institutions that control uh, $130 trillion worth of assets uh, have banded together to agree that they are going to do a variety of things to move towards a zero carbon environment. That's not quite the same as saying we're going to give up, we're going to donate that much money.
1: Well, yes, I, I, I think that the, the number is, I have no idea where that comes from. Uh, Mark Carney said something about it being assets, not on any balance sheet I've seen, but that's beside the point. Really the, the business number gained prominence because the governments basically couldn't manage anything. Now, keep in mind, some of the big carbon emitters, specifically Russia and China, uh, and skip the, the meeting entirely. And then you got to look at, take, take the G7, which are, you know, sort of industrial democracies, which ought to be able to work together. But among the G7, I think only, it's, it would be fair to say only uh, Prime Minister Johnson of Britain and uh, French President Macron have anything close to a clear-cut mandate on this. President Biden is working with tiny majorities in both House and Senate, he's and in the most recent Suffolk poll he had a 38% approval rating. There's not many degrees of freedom, but the same goes for, you know, Prime Minister of Canada. Trudeau has, a, again, a minority government. Germany's Chancellor Merkel is basically leaving office, promised to leave office, and is going, so she, did, she didn't even head a government when she showed up at the conference. And you know, then you go on, Japan is on its second Prime Minister of this year, <laughs> so and, and nobody voted for the Italian prime minister, as best I can tell. I, he didn't appear to be elected by anybody. So th- this is a problem where, where you have the, the, the supposed leading industrial economies. their governments aren't able to make the commitments. Now, look, whether or not these corporate commitments stick, I have no idea. Uh, they're for 2050. None of the people who are making the promises now are going to be around in 2050 to deliver on the promises. So this is, this is a little sketchy, but, but I think and also nobody's asked the investors about this. My, my view of markets is that if this were of interest to investors, it would be happening all, already. You wouldn't need Mark Carney's group to drive it. But if investors aren't interested in it, it has no chance of success. Imagine pension funds, you know, choosing to vote for net zero instead of rates of return that they need to deliver to their investors, the pension fund managers. Uh, so it, this, has got to, this is not quite reality. But for me, most of, the most important thing, the focus, the focus on the corporate commitments just underscores how the governments couldn't do anything. They couldn't even agree to stop funding coal plants, and you know, it's, which is troubling. Look, this is an issue that was supposed to unite the world. All it's done is divide it. So I'm, I'm a little pessimistic.
0: I'm actually less cranky on this one than I was on the, on the last one. I'm a little bit more optimistic. I mean, first of all, I think you want to put it in context. Uh, the COP sessions are a session for commitments, and it's a time for everybody that's there to step up and make promises about what they intend to do. It's a fair question which the activists outside the conference venue have repeatedly pointed out is whether anybody intends to keep their promises and is actually going to implement the commitments they've made, and And there's a record of, I guess the charitable way to put it, is not full implementation of prior commitments. Uh, certainly when it came to funding a fund to help uh, developing countries meet their own obligations uh, because they're not really in a financial position to do so. I think of the last COP or the one in 2015, countries promised, I think, a $100 billion fund to do that, and so far we're well short of that. But frankly, this two weeks, though, it's supposed to be, it's about promises. And the hard work really uh, really comes later. I think it's significant that companies are, have stepped up. I think you'll find them stepping up in uh, their own activities because they're going to discover that there's a bottom line to these things. I mean, if I were speaking to the activists and talking about, you know, what to do, that, uh, you know, it, it's probably fine to march down the street waving puppets around, as they've been doing since Seattle. But, you know, the best thing they can do is pressure companies to take the actions that they've promised to take and press companies to, uh, you know, pursue their own uh, zero- decarbonization policies or their own zero carbon policies in their manufacturing, and uh, not buy their products if they don't. Because uh, what boards of directors do is they look at the bottom line. And if sales are dropping, sales are declining, if they're getting a lot of bad public relations because of consumer boycotts, because they're not in the right place on climate, uh, that's the fastest way to get them to the right place, I think.
2: Yes, it would be nice if someone could write a check for $130 trillion, and if everyone could keep their promises, and if we could do everything quickly doesn't
1: seem to be in our future any Well, if we keep uh, keep inflation roaring, uh, as it has been, uh, we'll all be able to write trillion dollar checks before you know it. <laughs> well, if you're going to write one, write one to CSIS, uh, <laughs> care of the Chair. Chair. Yes,
2: yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'd be happy
0: to have it. We'll even take a million. I'm not fussy. Trillion, billion, and, you know, all the same.
2: Scott, you mentioned countries couldn't come to an agreement on coal plants. Did you have any reactions to John Kerry's statement that we wouldn't have coal in the United States by 2030?
1: Well, look, let's look at what has happened in the United States since, say, Kyoto, which was 2005. Last year, the U.S. carbon emissions were the lowest since 1983. There's been an overall reduction since 2005 on an annual basis of over 20%. Now, how did that happen? So regardless of commitments, those were the facts. The way it happened is we switched power plant operations from coal-fired plants to natural gas, which is a move that dramatically reduces carbon emissions. The next step, by the way, is nuclear, which is zero carbon emissions. The problem with commitments to eliminate any form of, of reliable, inexpensive energy is we have an economy that is built on cheap, reliable energy. All right, we all love to get up in the morning and flip the switch and have the lights come on. So that is the basis of the modern economy. To sustain that basis, you have to have some source of relatively inexpensive, uh, but reliable energy. And so natural gas and uh, is doing that now, nuclear has proven to do it. The activists don't like either natural gas or or nuclear, I'll let them explain their problems with them, but that's what you need. Otherwise, renewables renewables have the downside, which is they are intermittent, intermittent sources of energy. We now have a situation in the US and Europe where there is overinvestment in renewables and underinvestment in hydrocarbons of any sort, natural gas, Whatever the whatever the hydrocarbon might be, what that is leading to is higher costs and less reliability. You can only push that so far because uh, unless you build massive amounts of storage or do something else that is would also make energy more expensive. So that's the that's the dilemma that that people who do math face. The engineers who run our power grid, they're different than the people who are who are performing in Glasgow, (laughs) they're actually more important because we all like our lifestyle. All right. My ancestors were Amish. I prefer not to live like the Amish now. The Amish deal with intermittent power. Okay, because they don't have it in their homes. And if you'd like if you'd like an 18th century lifestyle, well, you can have it with or without uh, the, the commitment of faith of joining that particular sect. But that's the problem that the modern world has. And without that transition to stable, Reliable, inexpensive base energy further investment in renewables is just going to make things worse so that, that's that 's opinion from from somebody who does math occasionally, um, and that 's my encouragement to the to the pub the policymakers as well
0: I want to put in a good word for the Amish. I was just in, in Lidditz two weeks ago visiting my grandson who doesn 't live there, but we met in the middle and who 's not amish but uh, it 's very peaceful, and there 's a lot to be said for the uh, the lifestyle. I, I, I think when they take their horse-drawn carriages on public roads like US-30, they take their life in their hands. But,
1: uh, Yeah, had my ancestors not gotten kicked out of the church, I may still be Amish. Who knows? But <laughs> we were booted out for probably very good reasons. <laughs> I won't comment on that. But getting back to the substance, I kind of agree with
0: Scott in the, in the very short term. I don't agree with him in the long term. I think you know the 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 world is evolving away from fossil fuels, and it's going to be a slower evolution, I think, than activists want. But I think the course is clear. There was a really interesting article uh, the other day about a, a, a solar farm that's being launched in in Indiana, which is not the first place you would think of in Northwestern Indiana, actually, not the first place you would think of as a site for a solar farm. Or it's a joint venture with actually with an Israeli firm, among others and gotten together and, and bought a, a whole bunch of farmland, thousands of acres of farmland in northwestern Indiana, not all of which will be covered with panels. I think about 2,500 acres will be covered with with solar panels, but it's going to produce a very large amount of, uh, of electricity. And it's, one, it's fine to say, well, it's intermittent, of course, because, you know, it, the sun doesn't shine at night. Well, the sun shines, we just don't see it at night. But, you know, what's also happening simultaneously is advances in storage, advances in battery technology and storage technology to make that issue, I think, less important than it was uh, even a few years ago. So I'm not against nuclear, and I I think Scott's point is well taken, but I would not write off either solar or wind or or hydropower in particular. We've been doing research, for example, on uh, sustainability in the aluminum sector and uh, hydropower, hydropower plays an important role there, partly because Canada is such a significant producer of aluminum and most of their aluminum is produced with hydropower, which is also zero carbon. So don't write off the
1: renewables. I'm waiting for the breakthrough in storage. That would be a, a, a very important element. I mean, look, in 1900, cars were not powered by gasoline. They were battery powered. They were electric powered cars in 1900, 1903. Uh, And it was only after Standard Oil made gasoline readily available that the internal combustion engine took off. So battery-powered cars are known technology. The problem is storage. And the storage breakthrough, I'm uh, hoping for it as well, but I haven't seen it yet.
2: Last topic for the day and a topic that I think we'll be talking about until probably the end of the year, WTO Ministerial Conference Updates. There's been new talk about restarting negotiations for the Environmental Goods Agreement after Representative Susan Delphine pushed the Biden administration to do so on Monday. We also saw that there's been new draft text presented by the Fisheries Negotiations Chair that completely exempts the poorest countries from future subsidy disciplines and has greater flexibility for larger developing countries. Do you have optimism for either restarting EGA discussions or an agreement on fisheries?
1: I'm a little uh, worried about the WTO and its sort of slow motion operation on what may be minor or tangential issues. Look, I'm a friend of fish. I would like to see a fishery subsidies agreement in the worst way because I'm aware of, technologically, our ability to basically harvest every single fish in the ocean and uh, leave it it a, a liquid desert. I don't want to see that it's a classic commons problem it's a global commons problem and i'd love to see the wto make progress on it so i'm a fan of that but they're going they're going almost nowhere uh, same with uh, with environmental goods and services it's a relatively small matter when you look at this sc- the scope of the products covered in the meantime while the wto is fussing about about these two issues and and not Progressing all that much in Rome, you had the United States and the EU get together, and you look at the readout from the meeting with the Euro- European Trade Commissioner, which is they want to they want to limit access to European and U.S. markets from dirty steel. They want to counter countries that dump steel. Okay, so the the, the settlement or the, whatever what looked like a settlement of the Trump era national security tariffs on steel and aluminum, was actually the beginning of a new negotiating dynamic and a new, potentially new trade agreement. What's new about it? Well, what's new about it is subsidies are going to be okay in this, this agreement. Some subsidies are going to be okay, some aren't. What's also new is there's a foundation of it that says process and production methods matter. That does direct, Both are directly counter to WTO disciplines. WTO, GATT, has always said trade distorting subsidies are bad, they need to be eliminated or disciplined, and that a widget is a widget, and production and process methods have to be non discriminatory. So here you have the two big traders, the US and the EU, moving in a different direction, and so it looks to me like uh, Geneva's fiddling while big traders are off trying to solve the problems that they think they face on their own. So who's Nero? Unclear yet, and, and I don't want to assign blame. But uh, that was the one thing that came out of Rome, the G7 and G20 meetings that, that actually looked big to me and looked like there was potential for it to affect trade policy in a big way if, if it picked up momentum. But it's just really different than what anybody's talking about in Geneva.
0: Well, here I thought I was cranky. On this last one, I'm going to be marginally more optimistic than then Scott, uh, there's a, a new fisheries text came out on Friday. It attempts to uh, walk a line, and I think it's too early to say whether it can do so or not. It's always the case with these things that they either come together at the very end, or, or they don't. So we won't really know. The text of the agreement I think took some fairly significant steps um, in favor of developing countries, basically uh, giving them more time to uh, meet obligations, and in in the case of, and and. Uh, Making a clearer drawing, a clearer line between who had to meet the obligations and, and who and which countries were essentially poor enough not to have to meet the the obligations. The result of that was that the big offenders, if you will, which include Europe and the United States, but the 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 other the biggest offender, China, is is covered by the obligations in the new text, as is India, because the threshold for exclusion uh, on special and differential treatment basis is is fairly low. I think that the issue will come down to, what it always comes down to in the end, is has the text moved enough to satisfy the developing countries and not too far to annoy the developed countries who have, I think, understood from the beginning, except maybe for India, that um, they're going to be included, but have argued, uh, made an equity argument that, you know, everybody should be treated the same. And this is, you know, a, a text which does not treat everybody the same. And so the question of, of how big that group that's off the hook is going to be, that's not all, the only issue. They threw a bone to the U.S. by including the the language on forced labor, which which Catherine had proposed in in May, uh, as I recall, all in brackets, which means it's still subject to uh, agreement. It's not been agreed to yet. But I, th- I think this was an optimistic development. You know, the, the issues are being narrowed, brackets are getting smaller, and, uh, you know, it may fall apart at the end, but at this particular point, I think that uh, they're, they're following the normal script for a trade negotiation, which is in the lead up to the, to the uh, conference, which is going to be, it starts, I think, the 30th of November, so at the end of the month. In the lead up to the conference, they are narrowing their differences, and people seem to be working both diligently and in good faith to do that. Now, at the end of the day, will an individual country be a spoiler? Quite possibly. You know, India has a long history of doing that, and it wouldn't surprise me if they did it again, but uh, I think we have to be, uh, at least at this point, optimistic about that.
1: Well, convergence is a very good thing. Convergence in the lead up to, to a ministerial meeting is a particularly good thing, so I'm happy to see that. And as I said at the outset, I'm a friend of Fish. So um, I'd like, like to see it happen. I just wouldn't lose sight of what's happening outside of Geneva as uh, it could become a threat to legitimacy, uh, depending on where it goes.
0: Well, I'm a friend of fish, too. I'm, of course, I'm eating one tonight, so they, might, they may not feel that I'm quite as friendly to the fish, but it's uh, leftovers from a previous night, but it's still fish. I mean, I think Scott's right. There are multiple venues involved here, <laughs> and if the, if the WTO cannot come to closure, then that's simply going to invite more other venues to develop, which would probably not be good for the system.
2: Well, I think the biggest takeaway I have from our conversation today is that you are both friends of Fish and both equally cranky, and also that there's a lot to follow in the next few weeks. But thanks, as always, for a good conversation.
0: We'll be back. Thank you.